0: Hey there, welcome to SaaS Unbound, brought to you by SaaS Group. I'm your host, Dan Dana, and this is the show where we chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business a success. And today with me is Justin Duke, the founder of ButtonDown, a small, elegant tool for producing newsletters. It's been around for six years, bootstrapping, advocating for simplicity and openness, and built completely in public. Uh, which is fascinating. Great to see you here, Justin.
1: Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to chat.
0: Cool. All right. Well, uh, you know, there are tools that you kind of take time to um, get used to or fall in love with. And then there are tools that you just, it's love at first sight. And this is something that happened with me when I saw uh, Button Down, to be honest. Um, It's just yeah, simple and elegant. So um, let's get to maybe first your background, because I know that you just started uh, doing it full time about two years ago. So what's been before?
1: Of course. Um, so before I was working full time on Button Down, it really was more of a nights and weekends project for me, kind of the stereotypical indie hacker pulling up to a coffee shop right after work and like camping out till 8 p.m. or until they kick me out. Um, I was working at Stripe first as an IC, an individual contributor, working on some of our data analytics tools and making it easier for merchants to kind of close their books and understand their businesses and shifting after a couple of years to more of a management strategy role. And then before that, at uh, I was at Amazon where I was working on the, the Kindle ecosystem, sort of ebooks and e-readers and all of that. And it was really, really fun kind of getting to have my feet in two worlds at once of like, on one side, I was uh, in big tech, kind of learning how to deal with really, really large organizations and massive data sets and building like these ironclad architectures, but a very, very small part of them. And then on the other side, you're kind of doing the opposite, right? You're like figuring out how to get product market fit. You're uh, fighting not just fires, but like 17 different fires at once and trying to triage which fire is the most important. And iterating and launching and designing super, super rapidly. Um, bouncing between those two roles was was really, really fun and a great way to learn a lot.
0: Okay, that's exactly what I wanted to, to ask you about. Like, is uh, does work for a huge company then help narrow down your, your vision for your own sales product?
1: It does and it doesn't, which is is kind of like a cop out answer, but I'll I'll qualify it a little bit. One one way where, (laughs) yeah, it it depends. (laughs) Uh, What one way where it really really helped was getting an understanding of how the best companies in the world run really really complex and interesting and difficult tech products that have you know thousands of edge cases and. Uh, millions of customers and all these things, I felt like I leveled up so much as an engineer due to the time I spent at Amazon and Stripe. Uh, The flip side of that though is you kind of have to unlearn a lot of those lessons because so many of the quote-unquote best practices of like how you should make product level decisions or how you should test a new feature before it goes live and doing the rollout and all of those things, those are great when a quote unquote, like feature or a decision is this behemoth large thing that has hundreds of people contributing to it. And as soon as you push it to prod, it's going to be touched by tens of thousands of customers. And you you need to like, be as super detail oriented and and cover all your bases and like really erring on the side of caution. But one of the like classic sort of uh, indie hacker truisms, right, is like, if you're writing unit tests, you're probably not shipping fast enough. And I don't go quite to that end of the extreme, but I did have to unlearn some of the lessons of, okay, if I have an intuition that this is the right way to build something, I'm going to validate that not by like trying to build a lot of consensus with other stakeholders and uh, writing, you know, pages upon pages of integration tests and PR FAQs, but I'm going to get it in front of customers and users as quickly as possible, see what they think, see what they see, and then iterate from there. you learn a lot very quickly in the indie hacker landscape of like uh how much you can build and build and build that is all kind of throwaway work if you don't have that initial customer validation and that was one of the big lessons i kind of had to relearn for myself
0: okay all right so how did uh button down come to life at all like when did the idea Uh, come to you and uh, why did you decide to work on a newsletter building tool?
1: Of course. Um, Years and years ago, I was using a tool that is still around today. It's called Tiny Letter. I think they're owned by MailChimp now. Um, And I just had like a personal newsletter, couple hundred subscribers. This was before sort of the big newsletter boom. And I was just like, I want to share what books I've been reading, what articles I thought were interesting, that sort of thing. And I was using Tiny Letter to, to send that out. And it was just bluntly like a very frustrating experience of the interface would randomly eat my emails, and I felt like I was fighting against the tool to do what seemed like would be a really simple task, which was just like, I'm writing some prose, I'm copying and pasting, I'm sending it out, like I'm keeping my friends and family uh, up to date with what I'm doing. and. I had one weekend, I think it was uh, like Labor Day weekend or one of the three to four day weekends, one of the worst thoughts an engineer can ever have to themselves, which is I bet I can build a better version of this tool to use for myself. Um, and that was before I really had done any diving into like SMTP and all of the, the things you really have to do to build a robust and a secure and a scalable emailing system. But I was really focused on the, the user experience of like, if I can just get this in a flow that like. I feel like I will enjoy using it, then the project's a success. And of course, it took longer than just that one weekend to kind of get the initial MVP off the ground. But as I was sort of sharing screenshots on Twitter and other places with, here's this like hackneyed, you know, harebrained idea that I have for myself that I'm going to build, I realized that all of my friends and all of my colleagues who are using a bunch of competitors in the space all kind of felt that same thing of like, I would 100% use this, I would 100% pay for this. And then the project started to graduate to me from a, maybe this is a thing I like duct tape together for myself and maybe open source down the line to, oh, there's a there there. I should think about how this becomes less of a one-off tool, a fun little project and more of a product, a, a thing that I can build a business around and actually like, uh, spend not just weeks or months, but years and years developing and making into a really, really strong solution
0: okay that makes sense and uh, um at least now right uh there is this uh trend or like a thought especially on, on twitter that's going on that you know for a developer uh it's just so easy to come up with an mvp because especially now like there are like so many no code low code whatever uh white paper solutions so you just um press something together you know and, and it works um uh, but then the actual difficult part is is selling it. And like you said, you use Twitter and building in public to validate the idea. Um, did it bring you the initial customers after all? and Or maybe you had to iterate uh, when it was obviously later uh, available to the public?
1: Definitely the latter. I think when I talk with a lot of engineers and first-time founders starting their business, they... Have this misconception that like you spend some time building an MVP, doing maybe low code, no code, like validating with a handful of folks saying, okay, this, this thesis seems correct. Like let's, let's work towards a launch. We're going to have this lovely thing where we go viral on Twitter and we hit, you know, top uh, one or two things on product hunt and we get viral on hacker news and like, boom, then the product is solved. We, we have all of the customers we ever need. And I'm sure there are a couple of businesses for whom launching looks like that of, okay, you're grinding for a bit, you have this really nice release schedule, and then you're done. And then the flywheel just kind of takes over from there. I think that's the edge case though, not the reality. Like uh, when I look back on button downs launch, it went well by my standards of, I think it was like the top two or three on product hunt Like I got good traction on a bunch of channels. Like you get a lot of eyeballs, but very few of those folks actually converse. Uh, you get to go from, you know, a handful of your friends and your beta testers using a thing to slightly larger than that. But it wasn't a, ah, and now I can sit back and just like watch the stripe graph go astronomical. My work here is done. That was really the first of many, many steps of, okay, the launch went well. We have some folks. Uh, What's the new information that I can use? What's the copy that helped Versus, what's the copy that like kind of rubbed people the wrong way? What are the features that people were expecting to be there that aren't, and and vice versa? Um, and really, the the launch is uh, sort of like not a point in time; it, it's a process that kind of never ends. I feel like even now, like the vast majority of ButtonDown's target audience has never heard of Button Down before, and so there's there's no sense that like hey, I can stop thinking about that initial moment of traction because the the reward for having a good launch is like, all right, this is just enough ammunition to keep on turning the organic or a flywheel and figuring out what's next and what's next and what's next.
0: Right, okay. Do you remember how many uh, customers the first launch uh, brought to you?
1: Gosh, um, I think it was honestly around like, I want to say 20. And it was 20 at around like a a 29 a month price point. So in my head, like having this thing go from, oh, gosh, this is going to be a fun little project to me to, oh, wow, I have around 600, 700 MRR. That felt like a massive amount of validation. And then I started to like really dive into the numbers. And I was like, okay, but I had another like 700 people register who aren't interested in paying like that conversion math from registration to activation to actual payment is terrible like how do i improve that and once you start kind of building out the funnel and you have enough traffic to understand where people are dropping off then I think for me, the the real fun begins of it's not the theoretical, what would people like, but it's what are people actually bouncing off of? And what do I need to improve? How do I incentivize people to sign up and stay active and not just like register, put in a username, password, click around and then never return.
0: Yeah, okay, sure. And uh, that that makes complete sense. But again, uh, coming back to the fact that you're a solo founder, and you've been the only one working button down for a while. Uh, you turned a designer, a marketer, uh, a salesperson, all these roles were just you. Uh, what was the most difficult to learn?
1: Gosh, uh, a lot of them were. It's hard to pick just one. I think the the single hardest thing for me has been um, marketing after the first initial bits. Like, One of the things that I found really, really effective in the early goings of Button Down was the fact that the marketing was almost solved in the sense of, I could say, here's why I built it for these like very, very specific use cases. And I was really, really effective at targeting the niche of people who had the same like nitpicks and pain points and use cases as exactly myself. And that, that was like a really sizable niche that was great. And I was able to address that really quickly. And that felt very easy, very elegant, because in my head, it wasn't really marketing, it was me just like ranting and raving about how I feel the way I feel. I think shifting from that towards more of an expansion standpoint of, okay, I have a really, really good handle on that niche. How do I expand to the outer universe of customers and users who might not say know what Markdown is, or care about API access, but still want something very minimal, want integrations, Want a bunch of things for which Button Down is best suited, but I'm not like conversant with the, you know, their specific use cases and their specific jargon. Being able to shift into marketer mode for them has been really, really tough, especially because I'm I'm an engineer by trade and I spend so much time thinking about things through an engineer or developer's lens that taking off all of the all of the preconceived notions and getting rid of the tunnel vision that I have has been really, really tricky, but also extremely rewarding.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, uh, when I first visited ButtonDown, I thought, okay, so that's, again, uh, a website that to a marketer feels like it should not work. I mean, uh, don't get me wrong. There's just like a (laughs) lot of text, right? And you go there and you're like, wait, all the things that I've learned in my career is like, do not give people sheets and sheets of text to read. But <laughs> for you kind of uh, like works the other way around. Because honestly, I kind of got hooked because it's just like so clean. And I kept on reading. And I, I went into documentation and like API's. And I mean, don't get me wrong. I don't know. Nothing about API's. But um <laughs> or like, So I say. But anyway, it's not a thing that I would do uh, myself, but it was just like still so clean and so well uh, explained that I thought, okay, well, maybe, you know, if I put enough effort, then I could still use it. So what uh, tipped you off that this like this lawn lawn reeds uh, are your thing? And how did people react? Like, how did you go against maybe uh, all your marketing gut uh, and against all the other marketers uh, with this strategy?
1: <laughs> of course. And I'll, I'll preface this with a lot of my experience with button down is grounded in the fact that button down is not a. Uh, to, to put it mildly, is not a novel product. Like I'm not going from zero to one of like the first ever email marketing SaaS. It's an extremely crowded space. And the advantage of that is what button down success criteria looks like is not establishing a new vertical. It's not like taking over the industry and being like the next MailChimp or whatever. It's really finding a small slice of customers within this very, very large billion dollar industry and building the best possible product for that. And to to your point of like uh, this splash page that shouldn't work, it actually kind of works in in both senses, in the the sense that I had done a lot of A-B testing and iteration and just experimenting of what sort of home pages or pillar pages worked in terms of conversion and keeping users. And one of the things that I found was that the more conventional marketing pages, sort of like you've got the the hero image, you've got the h1, you've got the three features that have a screenshot and like a little bit of text and then a CTA and a bunch of testimonials like that actually converted pretty well and then all of the customers that converted from those specific pages like ended up bouncing off the product because really buttondown is not the right product for them on the margins compared to some of the other tools like they ended up really looking for something that was closer to like a mailer light or a MailChimp or something along those lines. The folks for whom the super prosaic, long-winded, here's a lot of text uh, homepage, for those folks who converted, they're like really, really active. They never churn because that kind of copy and that kind of sell resonates with them. They're not interested in like whiz bang user interfaces or like super super powerful you know 10 page long automations or, or fake svg graphics or anything they just want like in plain text here's what it does here's what it doesn't do here are the features and being able to kind of choose their own adventure in terms of browsing the api documentation like you said or or going from there um, it did feel like a, a little, I guess, cognitive dissonance for, for lack, of better, lack of a better term. My fiance is a marketer. And as I was iterating on those pages with her, she was like, are you sure this is what you want to do? Like, this copy is very, very plain spoken. It doesn't really sound like a SaaS. And I was like, I know, but I think that's who's going to enjoy this and who's going to be a really, really good user are the folks who have already tried out all the other platforms, seen that paradigm, and they want something different.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, uh, about, it doesn't sound uh, like a SaaS. We just uh, <laughs> laughed about that uh, in our Slack channel because we found this uh, this picture that would say, would have B2B SaaS businesses sold burgers? And uh, the website would say something like, the best way to fight your hunger or the best way to <laughs> enjoy meat and cheese and the bun together. So, yeah, it's yeah. just... Um, yeah, we marketers we we love that. Yeah. And uh, honestly, (laughs) um, after like interviewing so many founders and seeing so many websites and products, I feel like, yeah, it's, uh, it's a very common problem for, for SaaS products to have, uh, to have people actually dig deeper to understand what the product does. So, Again, when, when I went to button down, I was like, wow, that's simple. Like (laughs) I can just, you know, press the button and do a few things. And then here's your newsletter. Uh, but button down the name. I I really wanted to talk about it because it's a fun name. Um, but I would assume that, um, it, it doesn't go easy with marketing and your (laughs) SEO efforts.
1: Yeah. If, uh. If you Google button down, um, you're going to get Zara, you're going to get jQuery, you're going to get Uniqlo. I think button email shows up maybe if I'm lucky towards the very, very bottom of the first page, possibly second page. Uh, there are very few technical or product level decisions in the early goings of a project that are truly like irreversible that you really need to spend a lot of time thinking about. Like a chat with founders who are saying, oh, I'm really sweating how I should do pricing pre-launch or i'm really thinking about how i should like structure this nav bar and, like all of those things are so trivial to change after the fact like you kind of just need to get over yourself and and just ship the thing and iterate from there the one thing i wish i had spent a little more cycles thinking about was the name itself because uh it came from as, as context one of the flagship features button down when i was first launching it was markdown support markdown is kind of a, a dialect that's a little more powerful than plain text but a little less janky than a WYSIWYG editor or full-on html and i was just sort of trying to think of some sort of riff on markdown that sounded vaguely professional and elegant but not too like again too sassy i didn't want it to be like markdown emails.io or, or anything along those lines and I didn't think about it enough and just chose button down because I saw button down. Email was an available domain. Um, and that has been a bit of an uphill battle in terms of the organic SEO, because the number of times I'll have folks write in and say, like, I really couldn't find you guys because I was just Googling or binging or whatever button down and was just finding shirts and shirts and shirts. Um, that was unfortunate on my part. But despite that, uh, the the organic growth treadmill has has gone well. It's just had to fight a bit more of an uphill battle than I really should have in retrospect.
0: Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate or customer referral program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Lock your customer acquisition cost and only pay based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Rewardful automatically tracks referrals, calculates commissions, handles upgrades and downgrades, all seamlessly in the background, whether you sell one-off purchases or recurring subscriptions. Companies like Podia, Copy.ai, Barometrics, Synthesia, and many, many more are already using Rewardful to add that sweet, sweet MRR to their businesses. Sign up now at Rewardful.com for a free 14 day trial and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. Right, have you ever thought about changing the name?
1: I have, it's it's one of those things where like the the two big kind of investments in my head from a a resource standpoint and an energy standpoint are like changing the name and doing a complete rebrand and trying to go for the dot com of like button down.com is is parked by someone right now who's asking i think like 750k where it's like that's 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 a little little expensive for my taste um a lot of shirts and, you have to I mean,
0: you have to yeah. sell to <laughs> make up to this
1: yeah it's it is kind of um tempting in the sense of I, i've chatted with folks who have done that kind of like full scale rebrand before. And I think they would say, you know, there are some things that didn't go well, there are some things that went really well, like, overall, it was worth the effort. I think I'm still at the point where I feel like there are lower hanging pieces of fruit that I can do in terms of improving Bundown down as a product and improving some of the, the existing user acquisition, uh, which is not to say that I will never rebrand it or I'll never go for the dot com or any of those things, because I think the, the world, you know, two years from now looks very different than the world of today, but right now it's not high enough on my last list where it's like, I'm out of ideas. I think I need to go for the rebrand because if it just gives me like a X percent bump in SEO organic traffic, then it's worth it.
0: All right. No, it's a great name. I mean, uh, I loved it when we saw it. It just, yeah. But uh, then, uh, you know, I started Googling it and yeah, it was a bit <laughs> of a stretch, but yeah. uh, then <laughs> okay. Uh... The the funniest so, is when
1: you when you search yeah. uh button-down alternatives and it's just talking about like t shirts and henleys and polos and it's like, well, that's not quite right, but I'll take it. Not
0: quite, no. All right. So uh one and <laughs> half years ago, you quit your day job, right? And you fully focused on butt- button down. So uh from there, did you grow the team? Did you get somebody to work with you? Because since you know you were able to do that move, I would assume that. It means more customers, more support, more development. So how do you do it?
1: For sure. I think when when I made the decision to work on Button Down full time, my first goal was honestly like less growing the business and accelerating that and, and more honestly, an existential one of do I want like the life of being a bootstrap founder. Like, do I want to shift away from my big tech career, which I really liked and loved the people I worked with and felt like I was learning a lot and move towards something that's completely different. So first my goal was to validate that and make sure like I enjoyed the day-to-day because the blessing of running a business like like button down or like many sasses is that if you want, like you can kind of climb the hedonic treadmill of keeping on growing and like expanding the team and all of those things. Or you can say, hey, the margins on this business are incredible. I'm just gonna like sit on it or sell the business or or cash out in some way and then spend my time gardening or doing something else or working on a new project. And so once it became obvious to me that I loved working on button down full time, it was a great creative outlet. I did wanna grow the business and and grow the team. Then the question was really where, where do the resources need to be allocated? And for me, the two biggest things kind of dovetailed with where I felt like my time was not being spent enough and that the time was very valuable, which for me was writing both on like the technical writing and the documentation side and the marketing side, and then really customer onboarding and customer success. Uh, again, because Buttondown is in a very, very competitive industry and there are, there are lots of alternatives one of the things that really makes or breaks a lot of these accounts is how easy is it for me to go from clicking around on Down to registering to, boom, I have a custom domain and everything set up and I'm ready to go. And being able to hire a technical writer and a engineer who would spend all of their time both in a white glove capacity and contributing to the core product to make that better, that's where it really felt like, okay, any additional cycles here is gonna be super well spent. Like I don't have to worry about it because it's helping not just new users, but the existing users as well. Um, And sourcing was, was very tricky of like the, even with all of the layoffs and all of the tumult in the industry over the past, you know, 12 months, 18 months, it's still incredibly competitive to find folks who are really, really good at being able to context switch, not just from a technical and a non-technical standpoint, but from a, like what we were talking about with marketing, from a interior to an exterior standpoint of thinking about things as the writer, but also thinking of things as the reader. Um, and so I really had to tap my personal network, which again is kind of unhelpful, on unactionable advice, but it's true of like, who are the people I know who are really, really great writers who are looking for something to do maybe as a nights and weekends project, or they are freelancing and they have availability for a new client. And like, how do I find those folks as opposed to like, just uh, tossing something into the ether of, uh, here's a job description, just like the 75,000 other job descriptions that you've probably seen. Um, And how do I stand out? And hitting the personal network thus far has been really, really helpful for me.
0: Okay. And uh, as far as I understand, you've got contractors working with you. It's not full-time, right? But I would assume it's like a long-term commitment. It's not like you go to, Mm -hmm. I don't know, people per hour and uh, hire a new person for each article. So uh, how do you... Right, exactly. Yeah. How do you uh, work around that? Because again, uh, people are not really... um, full-time with you right they work on uh different projects so how do you make sure that you're able to translate uh the culture uh that you're trying to grow because um as far as i see you see yourself working on button down many years from now and maybe grow into a much bigger company so I would assume you are starting to build some kind of culture and values inside the team from this point. So how do you keep everyone uh, on the goal? How do you make sure that everyone understands their role and that, uh, and the fact that it's a small team, so everyone's kind of working on growth together? So, And uh, yeah, basically, how does the communication happen?
1: Of course, a, a lot of the, the culture and value side of things happened during the sourcing and and initial onboarding negotiations in the sense of, you know, if you're a talented engineer or if you're a talented writer and what you want to do is kind of be, and I don't mean this in a negative way, like uh, a mercenary of, I want to work on 10 different projects over the course of 10 different weeks and like bop around a bunch of different companies and industries, like that is completely valid. And also like button down is not going to be the right fit to your exact point of, uh, really biasing towards, Longer term relationships that way the the folks who are working on bun down can build up a, a context and understanding of the product. So a lot of those conversations were happening in the early goings of here's the arrangement. Like you can uh, work in a very asynchronous manner. You get a lot of ownership over the product and the direction and where you want to grow. Whether it's as an engineer, as a writer, or as a marketer. Um, but it means like you're going to be focusing on this one thing. And within that one thing, you get a lot of ownership and latitude and agency. Um, and that was both a, a really positive uh, negative filter and a positive filter. There are a lot of folks who I respect a lot who are just like, this sounds like a great opportunity, but it's it's not for me. I kind of want to just dive into a couple different projects and like get my feet wet and uh, get a lot of exposure as opposed to really committing to one thing. But I think being able to offer folks who work with me a, a true amount of, of growth that comes through ownership. I think you just, you bluntly learn more when you're embedded in any sort of project or any sort of creative endeavor for a long time, as opposed to, well, here's the spec, here's three pages, please submit a pull request by the end of July. Thanks, you'll, you'll, inv- you'll invoice me at the end. Like, I think you can get a lot of object level understanding of a system that way, but most of the folks who work with me are trying to basically build something along the lines of button down at some point. They're earlier in their career. They want to kind of launch their own businesses. They want to be able to really work in a high growth startup environment. And I feel like the value prop that I can offer them is that on training wheels. And for some folks, that really doesn't sound interesting or enticing, but the, the folks who do buy in a lot and I think going back to sort of the, uh, the brand voice or the, the pros of it all, like being able to tell someone, hey, you get to write in this style. You don't have to write as if you're doing a fridge owner's manual from 1997 or anything. You get to feel a level of expression that you might not in a similar role. I think that can be attractive. And again, the, the folks for whom that isn't attractive probably aren't going to be the right fit for your project.
0: Okay. All right. I think that's a great uh, way to put it out there. Again, being very honest that, you know, you could be a great professional, but we're not uh, going to work together because it's not a good fit uh, in the long run. All right. Uh, So it's great that we started to talk about ambitions because one of the things that we discussed on some of the previous uh, episodes was um, why people choose bootstrapping versus uh, raising funds. And uh one of the things was ambition, like how fast or or how uh, high you want to jump, basically, right? So and to you, I understand that you want to grow further. You see button down being a big company, but you still chose bootstrapping, right? So how do those ambitions and the fact that you're a bootstrapping company work together and what helps you stay focused on this sustainable growth?
1: For sure. I'm in the lucky position to have button down be financially completely stable so that if no growth ever occurred for the indefinite future, I would be completely fine. Like uh, It's it's throwing off a lot of cash flow. Like it, it has already succeeded, frankly, past my wildest ambitions. And at the end of the day, I'm an engineer at heart. The things that are most motivating to me are getting to build products and design experiences that I think are legitimately great and feel good, not because they like drive B2B revenue or because they're uh, capturing market share, but because they're, they're strong products that stand on the weight of their own engineering prowess. And to me, growth is not an end goal. Like growth for growth's sake, if that was something that was interesting for me. Then I probably would not have gone down a bootstrap route. I would have done something closer to the, the the VC route of like you raise a round, you build some stuff that maybe doesn't have unit economics at that scale, but you you hit all your KPIs, you raise another round, and you keep doing that until you hit some sort of terminal velocity. Uh, and there's there's nothing wrong with that. It's just my personal goals and what excites me every day has nothing to do with that. Like growth, I think of more as a byproduct that comes from building really strong products and figuring out a way to get those products in front of folks with whom it resonates. Um, and you can do that with bootstrapping. You, you can kind of do that with, with alternative routes, but I think bootstrapping has this really nice blend of incentives in terms of where the finances are, where the goals are, such that I don't have to worry about, man, I could rush this thing out the door and it'd be kind of janky and my users might not like it, but like. It'll be really, really good for the next round or things of that nature. Like it's an entire class of problem that I don't have to worry about. I get the luxury of focusing on what's best for me and what's best for my users and everything else kind of falls out of that.
0: Okay. so uh, would you say that because at the beginning we were talking about the fact that as an indie hacker, you try to not perfect everything, but test and see how uh, customers or users react. But now, since you've scaled a little bit, you can have the luxury of slowing down and and focusing on what you think is the best for the product.
1: Exactly, exactly. And if I was saying that without any paying users, then I think there would probably be a bit bit of cognitive dissonance of, um, well, the, the price of not actually arriving at product market fit is you get all this agency to completely destroy entire features overnight and it's completely fine if the direction changes. But also the weight of those decisions is, is nothing because there aren't folks who use them. Now that I'm in a position where if button-down like hides a button for 10 minutes on the core writing interface, like I know I'll get a hundred tickets writing in that's like, where is the select tags for subscribers button? And having to be a little bit closer to where my career started out in terms of Amazon and Stripe. And those like really strong user first, more cautious principles has actually been a boon because now it's not, Oh, how do I have to think about testing strategies and uptime and all this stuff from whole cloth? I can lean back in on how really successful companies do that. And again, it's, it's kind of a spectrum where complete YOLO and complete abandon is on one side. And then like, Amazon's release strategy is on the other side of the spectrum. I've moved a little bit to the latter side, though I'm still not quite that far. It's more the, the value proposition and the risk of having a bad deploy or pushing broken code is so much higher than it was when I was first starting out. And the goal of a feature wasn't to be stable for 10 years. The goal of a feature was just to be used at all and to see if it resonates with users.
0: Yeah, okay. Since we uh since you mentioned uh, product market fit, I really want to to talk about that because uh again, something that a lot of founders struggle with. And uh customer communication is key there, right? So uh obviously you have to talk to your customers, but the um actual question that everyone wants to ask is how to do that. You cannot knock on their doors and say, Hey, you know, I found you by uh your ip so i know you live here and use my product so tell me what went wrong and why you turned all right how do you do that um how do you reach out what kind of incentives you offer for um for their help and for their insights
1: of course and i'll preface this with the caveat that button downs users are probably not Completely generalizable to the entire universe of SaaS. Like, button downs users scale uh, or skew rather a little more technical and a little more public facing because if you're writing an email newsletter, like, you're probably used to some back and forth. But I have uh, the closest thing to like the one weird trick that has worked really well, which is whenever someone signs up and uh, a couple days after they sign up, like, I have a, a cron that from my box sends them an email that's coming from not not a like marketing at button down dot email or onboarding at down dot email, but it's just my email address in complete plain text that says like, "Hey, this is an automated email, but if you reply, like, it is going to me. It's not going to some customer service agent. It's not going to like Help Scout or anything. It's going straight to me. Just want to understand like why you're checking out the product, like what you're interested in." Uh, here's some of the stuff that we've worked on lately, like the, the exact copy and prose that's in every single other, like new user registration email that you get from a SaaS, but written again, in very, very plain spoken English, just want to hear more and really try to, to meet folks at their level. Because I think, I think we're pretty close to SaaS saturation where people are not like super excited to try out a tool just cause the way they were say a decade ago, people, kind of have grown uh, maybe a little cynical or a little world weary of the entire SaaS ecosystem. And just trying to err on the side of like, I'm not going to cold email you. I'm just going to like try and lay it out to you plain has been really, really effective. It, it worked when I was first launching Button Down when I didn't have an audience. Like uh, that was in the pre cron job days where it was me just opening Gmail, copying and pasting a list of email addresses for folks who had signed up and sending this email to them. And I think like people really do respond to that in a way that feels more earnest and feels more genuine than every single other like onboarding SaaS sequence that they get. And you can take it too far. Like there's, I'm sure you get inundated with like cold Twitter DMs and cold emails that are like, here are three random things I pulled from you from LinkedIn. I'm gonna uh, mail merge them in so it looks vaguely personalized, but I definitely sent this to like a thousand other people Like people just are smarter than that. Like they know that's happening. And I think trying to be honest with them and just get them into a conversation. Because as soon as you have some sort of a reply, you can schedule 15 minutes to chat with them. Then you start to get a lot of insights, especially for something like button down, where it's not trying to establish an entirely new vertical. It's more, what do you hate about what you're currently using? And people are always excited to just rant and rave about things that are lane. bothering them or things that frustrate them. Exactly. It's, it's hard to put someone on the spot and be like, what's one thing that you uh, really wish a tool existed for? Like, that's a really hard question to answer. But if you ask them, what's something that really annoys you about like MailChimp? Or what's something that really annoys you about Cloveo?" That's really easy for them to answer. And focusing on on that side and kind of having the the negative directions as opposed to positive directions, if that makes sense, that has been a very easy way to steer the conversation.
0: Oh, wow. That's interesting. I I started like uh, realizing in my head, like how many tools I can complain about? A few, but yeah, and it's great. Uh, I I completely understand uh, how people get excited when you can actually reply to the founder because um, I did that a few times for the podcast because I love the product and I thought, okay, I'm going to just, uh, email back and it worked. Uh, but there were a few that didn't, and it was just an automated email and it went nowhere. And then I, I got a reply, you know, it, it, got lost. It never went to the center. So I was like, what's the point of, of doing it at all? Just putting your face there, uh, but not actually, yeah communicating, so that, that's kind of frustrating. All right, do you know what's the like reply rate? Like how many people do actually want to rant about other products and tell you what uh, they are looking for in button down?
1: I don't have the exact number off the top of my head, but it's way higher than I frankly expected. It's, it's in the like five to 10% range for every single new registration which means no, like no. I wake up every, and I'm now at the point where I can't uh, sit down and jump on a call with, with all of them. But the both, both it's a longest and most valuable part of my day at this point is waking up, coming into a new crop of like 10, 20, 30 emails. That's sort of like, uh, and there, there are folks who will be just saying, hey, I'm just testing to see if this reply actually works to your point. And then I'll get folks who come in and, write 500 words of, here are all the tools that I've tried before, and I don't know if button down's the right one for me because I tried this and I hated this and I tried this and I hated this and so on and so forth. But being able to have this constant river of both customer feedback and prospect feedback, especially for folks who end up not going with button down is incredibly useful. It's, uh, you hear often a lot about founders who post product market fit kind of get disconnected a little bit between the day-to-day of like user pain, because you know they've hired customer service folks and they're not always the first line of support and all of these things and all of that makes sense. But I think it's so important to start everything grounded in, okay, but what problems are fe- people actually having and what can I do to either solve them or make it slightly less painful?
0: Yeah, I can completely understand. All right, perfect. Thank you for, for being so open about this. Uh, all right, just a couple more questions, and uh, one is the usual. What's the biggest win and the biggest failure so far?
1: Who biggest win and biggest failure? Um, I think well, we probably covered the the biggest failure in terms of uh, choosing the name. Um, I, mean, I, I it, would it say turned it turned
0: out to be okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it definitely turned out to be okay. I, I think they're. Maybe to generalize from that a little bit, so much of what I did in the first, let's say, six weeks of button-down was honestly not really considering that it would be a thing I'd be working on uh, six years from now, let alone a decade from now. Um, Some of those are like really trivial architectural decisions that took a really long time to unwind. Some of them, uh, like we were talking about, were just branding decisions. Um, And so the kind of meta-failure there was... Not sufficiently striking the balance between, okay, let's just get this in front of some folks' hands and uh, seeing what they, what they like, what they don't like, and really doing the scrappy MVP. And how do I future-proof this in a way that if I want to go forward with it, like, it'll be easy and I won't have to regret a bunch of 2016 Justin's decisions. Um, so I, I think my big failure was not quite adequately striking that balance and not giving a lot of those early decisions the thought they deserved. Uh, the biggest win, I think, going from this is just completely me, solo founder, no contractors, no one, to my first hire, which was the the onboarding engineer who kind of helps with customer success, answers some tickets, improves the, the immediate user journey of the product. I had a lot of, uh, and this is really getting into psychoanalysis uh, territory here, frankly, like I had a lot of self-doubt of like, it felt like a big leap going from this is a solo founder sustainable business to, oh, there are more people involved now. Like I had all of these completely incorrect misgivings of, oh, but this person won't have the right brand voice. They won't be thinking about customers the way I will. They won't know all of the things I do. They don't have this context. And just all of that was so, so wrong. Like they hit the ground running and immediately the impact was like, this is better for me because it preserves my focus on larger, more strategic initiatives, it's better for the customers because they get someone whose full job, their success criteria is making sure they have the best possible time. And I just, I really, really knock myself for not doing it like two years sooner because it was so immediately great for everyone involved.
0: Okay. That makes sense. It's a very usual answer that makes me really happy, like getting the right team or like getting the best (laughs) people to work with me. Was the best decision uh, ever made, so that's perfect. All right, and uh, you've already shared an amazing hack on like how to engage people in a conversation to give you some insights about the products that they didn't like and what they're looking for. But is there anything else, a hack that works for you that's maybe like with the with your copy? Any marketer would be uh, <laughs> kind of terrified <laughs> uh, about. Um, about this decision, but uh, it worked for you. Uh, was there anything else that was not maybe completely conventional, right? But you implemented it for Button Down, and it works for you. And it's the hack that uh, you go to every time you need. I don't know to to spice things up.
1: <laughs> it's a it's a great question. I think the this isn't maybe a hack because this is fairly common advice, but I, I think it's it's easy to get out of the habit of it or lose the muscle memory for it, which is I owe button down success to the fact that I could short circuit so many product decisions and marketing decisions and all of these things from the perspective of if I'm the user, how would I react to this? How would I want this user flow to work? What I, what would I want this, this marketing page to say? And so on and so forth. And when in doubt, whether it's how should I build out this feature? What is the flow like? Or how should I frame this, this feature in, in a marketing page or in a documentation page? like Try really hard to throw all of the thoughts that you have in your head and all of the tunnel vision that you get from spending hours and hours working on a thing out the window and just approach it with completely virgin eyes of like, I've never seen this product before. I don't know any sort of context, like what would I expect to happen? And time and time again, the intuition and the, the findings you get from that experience always ends up to be the correct one. Like, I'm sure there are some apps or software businesses that their main goal is novelty of we're going to build like this completely new paradigm or we're going to invent, you know, pull a refresh on iOS and, and things of that nature. and. If you're that kind of person, great, maybe this doesn't apply to you. But I think the most delightful user experiences or marketing experiences come from something working exactly the way I expect it to. And being able to really tap into that feedback loop of what, what do I think should happen here? What do I think this should say? And then implementing that and just going into that cycle always seems to work.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I feel like you can definitely reinvent the wheel if you want to and like do something extremely creative, but it should come on top of a a product that works perfectly, a product that does the thing that it uh, tells it does. Uh, And other than that, if you can add some value with the bells and whistles, sure. Yeah. But uh, first, yeah, it should just, it should just work for people. Okay, awesome. Exactly. I think that's a great advice. All right. well Justin, I think uh, honestly, I feel like uh, what I saw at button down and what I hear um, here during the episode, uh, you translate the values and the uh, like the vibe that the product gives uh, completely. It's really great to see how a founder is such a great uh, advocate for what they're doing and really, translates the values that, that they're pushing with their product. So thank you.
1: Thank you. That, that's super flattering to hear. And I'm I'm glad that conveys. I'm always sort of worried that uh, it's way easier for me to like write this stuff down than to actually like live it in practice. And I'm glad a lot of where I think not necessarily the entire industry should be, but certainly parts of the industry should be in terms of a, a focus on craft and authenticity comes through.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for an amazing conversation. And I hope uh, a couple of years from now we do another episode when Button Down rules it all.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much again for having me. It was a pleasure.
0: Yeah, same here. Take care. That was yet another awesome conversation on SaaS Unbound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders, and if you're one, reach out to me directly at, Anna at saAS.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS group. A founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit SaaS.group, fill in the form and expect a response in under 24 hours.